22. Joshua chapter 22. would encourage you, as always, to have your Bible open. If you don't bring one with you today, we'd encourage you to take the pew Bible. You can turn right to page 196. And that will take you to the page. We'll be reading that passage in just a moment. Upon departing the final meeting of the Constitutional Convention on September 18, 1787, just one day after 39 delegates signed the new governmental framework for the nascent United States of America, Philadelphia socialite Elizabeth Willing Powell is reported to have asked Benjamin Franklin... Well, doctor, what have we got? A monarchy or a republic? To which Franklin reportedly replied, A republic, if you can keep it. Well, Franklin's response there magnifies the fragile condition of the United States of America in those early days. Just three decades before, the colonies revolted against British tyranny that was expressed in unfair taxes and unjust regulations and heavy-handed militarism. But the freedom that they secured did not bring an easy way of life. They faced new challenges of a variety of kinds. And while the Constitution that the founders drafted sought to preserve the blessings of our liberty and to promote the general welfare, it only brought a fragile peace. The slightest trouble might cause the newly formed republic to crash in upon itself. And if you've read American history from this time, you know there were several things that nearly threatened the integrity of that new nation. Franklin's warning to Elizabeth Powell implied that the nation would need to unite collectively around this new constitution and work intentionally and deliberately to keep it. When we look at Joshua chapter 22, we see that Israel almost immediately after the conquest and division of the land, faced a similar crisis. Even as the tribes returned to their land allotments, a theological crisis threatened to not only undermine national unity, but really break apart the very heart of Israel's covenant relationship with God. Well, what was that crisis? What was the threat that this crisis posed to Israel? How was this crisis averted? And even maybe more significantly for us, what can we learn from it ourselves? And especially for us corporately as the people of God, the church. Let's look at Joshua 22. It is a longer chapter. I would like to read the whole thing. So please follow along in your version of God's Word as I read for us. Joshua 22, beginning in verse 1. Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. 
Now to the one half tri- to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, "Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoils of your enemies with your brothers." So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the, of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it. Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And the people of Israel sent to the people, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family according to the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of, of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at the... At, have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there, is, there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow we will be angry with the whole, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Do not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. And the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, said, The Mighty One, God, the Lord... The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let all Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform in the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, 
the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words of the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. We are entering here into the final section of the book of Joshua. You can see there's only a few chapters left, three chapters And this section, really the theme that permeates from this section is a theme of exhortation. There's a series of exhortations here calling the people of Israel to live in covenant faithfulness to the Lord now that he has fulfilled his promises to them. That exhortation in chapter 22 comes mostly by means of this story rather than the means of speeches that Joshua will give in the next two chapters. And this story depicts particular dangers that are just lurking out there for the people of Israel. These are the kinds of things they're going to face. And the question is, how will they face them? How must they face these new challenges? Well, what I want to do first as we go through this message today is to kind of walk through the passage and then come back and pull out the points of application I think we can glean from them. So first, what happened? Let me just kind of put this into sort of four key uh, things that are happening in the text. So first, we see that in, at the end of cha- Joshua chapter 21, God has fulfilled his promises to Israel. The fighting is over, for the most part. The land has been taken. Israel is the predominant presence, the predominant nation at taking possession of the land of Canaan. The land has been divided amongst the tribes. The various tribes, each one has gotten a portion. The Levites and the priests even get cities assigned to them for where they will live. And so now that the major fighting is done, Joshua, we see in the first five verses, releases the two and a half eastern tribes, those tribes that took their possession on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, just as a way of review, if you're kind of wondering, well, how do those tribes get over there? I thought the Israelites were supposed to live on the west side of the Jordan River. Uh, And I have a map here that you can uh, put up there, Abby. Um, there, There we go. I'll get to that in just a second. But just as a way of review, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they ended up on this side. They had come over from Egypt, which is over here in sort of the brown area, come from the south, wandered up this way, and they ended up kind of hanging out there as their home base until the Lord gave them the command to cross the Jordan River into the west side. And while they were there on that eastern side, there were these two and a half tribes, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, that said, you know, this land is good over here. It's a fertile land. It's a good land for raising livestock. 
We would like to take our possession on this side of the Jordan River. We don't need to cross over. We don't need land over there. Give us our land here. Give us our inheritance here. So Moses conceded, but on one condition. He said to them that when the rest of the Israelites were to cross over the Jordan to fight in that land and to take possession of the land on that side of the river, that the fighting men from those eastern tribes must also cross over with their brothers. They, God was going to use them to walk side by side and to fight side by side with their Israelite brothers until the fighting was done so that these other tribes, the nine and a half tribes, could take possession of their land. And so these two and a half tribes gladly agree to that condition. While I'm here, you might say half tribe of Manasseh that sounds kind of weird. The half tribe of Manasseh was a, or the, the, the tribe of Manasseh was a very large tribe. It was one of the most populous tribes of all the Israelites. And you'll see from this map that half of the tribe received their possession on the west side of the Jordan River and half received it on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Then the, the tribe was so populous that they took up possession on both sides. And so we use this half tribe as a convenient uh, moniker, if you will, to refer to the part that lives on the eastern side of the river, eastern Manasseh, and then the other part, the other half tribe, the western Manasseh, that lives on the west side of the Jordan River. Now, back in chapter 1, when it was time for the Israelites to move, to cross the Jordan River and to move into the Promised Land, to begin fighting the Canaanites, Joshua exhorted the, these two and a half tribes, these eastern tribes, to remember their commitment to Moses. And they responded with wholehearted agreement. They joined, they gladly joined their Israelite brothers. They crossed over the Jordan River and they fought against the enemy. But now that the fighting is over, Joshua releases the eastern tribes from their pledge so that they can return home and settle in their allotment in this Transjordan region, the region that is across the Jordan. But before they depart, Joshua first commends them for their obedience to God and for their faithfulness to their brothers. He recalls the same language and ideas that he used back in chapter 1 in verses 2 through 4, that they obeyed the word of Moses, they obeyed the word of Joshua, they obeyed the word of God. They went and they fought so that their brothers could find peace, that could have the peace of the land just as they received on the eastern side of the Jordan River. But before he, they, they go over, Joshua also exhorts them to continue to walk in the same covenant faithfulness that they had been demonstrating through these years of war. In fact, look at verse 4, about the middle part of verse 4. He says, Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. It's almost a restatement of the greatest commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples back in Matthew chapter 22. Joshua here is telling them, look, now that you are going home, remember, love the Lord your God completely with all your heart and with all your soul. A love that is to be demonstrated by obedience to God's commands. In other words here, Joshua is challenging these eastern tribes to keep living faithfully before the Lord. The end of the war does not change their need for covenant fidelity. And so with Joshua's blessing, the eastern tribes returned home taking with them their share of the spoils of war. 
along the way as they are uh, heading back in that direction, before they are to cross the Jordan River back on the eastern side, while they're still on the western side, they build, these eastern tribes build an altar. And not just any altar, we're told in verse 10 that it is an altar of imposing size. This just simply means it's an altar designed to grab someone's attention. The same word, imposing, there is used back in Exodus, Exodus 3, 3, to refer to the burning bush. When Moses caught sight of the bush and he couldn't look away, it was something that drew his attention. This altar was meant to be something that would draw the attention of all the Israelites. And so they build this altar, they continue on, they cross the Jordan, they return to their homes, and everything seems innocuous until we get to verses 11 and 12. Look at those verses for a moment. It says that after the eastern tribes built the altar of imposing size, the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel, the western side. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh, that's where the tabernacle is, a central sanctuary, to make war against them. The western tribes are incensed when they hear the report about this altar. They are so incensed that they prepare themselves for civil war to go against their eastern brothers. It's remarkable how quickly things turned. The peace that God had given to His people, I mean, just given to His people. We just read it last week in verses 44, in verses 43 and 44 of chapter 21, how God had given him, given the whole nation peace. He had fulfilled all of His promises to them. And now, as the people are going home, things changed immediately. That peace is immediately threatened. Now, the response of the Western tribes here is not necessarily unjustified, if they are correct in their reasoning, that needs to be determined. And thankfully, for a moment, cooler heads prevail. The Western tribes decide in verses 13 and 14 to put together a delegation, the leader of each tribe. Again, there's nine and a half tribes on the Western side, so a tribal leader from each of those tribes. And then Phineas, the son of the high priest Eliezer, leads this delegation to go and to ask the Eastern brothers you know, what's going on? They're there to investigate. Now, Phineas is an interesting figure. Phineas possessed a zeal for God's righteousness. In fact, in verse 17, they mention the sin at Peor. And in that effort, the fallout from that, Phineas was one who really defended God's righteousness. He led the effort to expunge idolatry and immorality from Israel. In fact, he famously put a spear simultaneously through an Israelite man and a Midianite, his Midianite wife, which illustrated both the nature and the gravity of Israel's sin. So Phineas acts something here like a defender of the faith or a, uh, an enforcer of orthodoxy. And so when the eastern tribes see this delegation show up and Phineas is in that delegation, it should have probably caused them to kind of quake in their boots a little bit. This is like, and I'm sorry that the reference is dated for you younger guys. You'll have to tell me who the, this person is in your generation. This is like Chuck Norris showing up, or Arnold Schwarzenegger, or Rambo, okay? This is not the guy you want to see. You don't want to see Phineas because usually something bad is going to happen. Phineas is going to break it out, and he's going to set things in order, all right? 
Now, this delegation arrives before the eastern tribes, and they, in, beginning in verses uh, 15, well, f- verses 15 to 20, they accuse the eastern tribes of apostasy and infidelity to God's covenant. In fact, look at verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the, Lord, the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves and alter this day in rebellion against the Lord. The Western tribes see this altar as a breach of faith on the part of the Eastern tribes. And that breach of faith poses devastating consequences, not just for the Eastern tribes, but for all of Israel, right? Remember about how sin affects not just one person or one family or one tribe, but it affects the whole nation corporately. In fact, he brings up, Phineas and the delegation bring up two examples of sins that affected the entire people. He brings up in verse 17, the sin at Peor. This occurred during the wilderness years when the prophet Balaam, go back to chapters, or to Numbers chapters 22 to 25, when Balaam the prophet advised Balak, the king of Moab, to entice Israelite men with Moabite women. And not only did the Israelites agree to that and engage in that kind of immorality, but the Moabite women led the Israelite men into idolatry. And so there was this great offense, a great sin had plagued the people of Israel, and God's anger was kindled against his people, and 24,000 Israelites died in that plague. They also bring up in verse 20, Achan's sin. Remember Achan from chapter 7, right? Achan had taken some of the devoted things. He had, in fact, the word in verse 7, chapter 7, verse 1 is that he broke faith. It's the same word as translated breach of faith in verse 16. Achan had broken faith. He had breached faith after the battle of Jericho by taking some of the items that were reserved for the Lord, right? Some of the, the valuable possessions, the gold, the silver, an article of clothing, the things that belonged to God. Everything in Jericho belonged to God. There were no spoils of war to be taken, but Achan took some for himself. And it brought disastrous consequences on the people, right? When the people went to go attack Ai, they suffered a resounding and humiliating defeat. In fact, it's the only loss in all the conquest of Canaan. One man's sin plagued the entire nation. They all suffered corporately for what he had done. And so the Western delegation is recalling these sins and recalling these consequences as a way of rebuking and warning and holding the Eastern tribes accountable for building this altar of imposing size at the Jordan. I guess we should probably ask the question, what's the big deal about this altar, right? Why do the Western tribes see this altar as something dangerous? We need to remember that God's law permitted only one altar, That was an altar dedicated to Yahweh alone at the tabernacle where his offerings, his sacrifices were made to him. So this altar appears to be a deviant altar, an illegitimate altar, a counterfeit altar. This altar could be a place where where idolatrous worship is offered. In fact, the Western tribes seem to fear that the Eastern tribes would use this altar to worship a God other than Yahweh. We see that again in verse, uh, verses 16 and 17 where they talk about rebelling against the Lord, turning away from the Lord, from Yahweh. To offer 
worship, to offer sacrifices to gods other than Yahweh, is idolatry. And it smacks in the face of God's covenant. Because God's covenant does not permit worship of any other god, only God alone. Well, even if the, these West, the East Eastern tribes were not intending to be idolatrous, had no intention of offering sacrifice to other gods, this altar could be an altar used for improper worship of Yahweh. The Eastern tribes might think, well, we'll worship Yahweh, but we'll offer our sacrifices here at this altar instead of the altar at the, at the tabernacle. But this, too, is unacceptable. The law forbade offerings at any place other than the tabernacle. That was the sanctioned place of worship, the only place where sacrifices could be altered. So while the eastern tribes may mean well by wanting to worship the Lord and offer sacrifices there, they were actually breaking the covenant. Now, if either of these explanations are true, then the eastern tribes are indeed bringing grave sins upon the nation. And as in the case of the sin at Peor and Achan's sin, it will be the entire nation who suffers, not just the eastern tribes. All of the nation will experience God's righteous wrath. And so the western delegation does not want that to happen. They will not allow the sin of the eastern tribes to affect them or to affect any part of the nation. Following the covenant protocol, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, the Western tribes intend to purge Israel of this sin in order to defend God's holiness and spare the nation of God's judgment. If they cannot plead with them to repent of building this altar, then they will do what they have already done to the Canaanites, and that is devote them to destruction for not worshiping the Lord properly. This is what all Israel had agreed to back at Mount Ebal and at Mount Gerizim when they spoke the covenant blessings and curses with one another. Go back to Joshua chapter 8, the end of that chapter, to see how they pronounce these curses. That if they were to, if anyone were to walk away from the covenant, if anyone were to break God's law, the entire nation were to band together to bring God's curse, to bring death upon those who disobeyed and walked away. So life after the conquest of Canaan, now that the fighting is done and people have their inheritance, it's not going to be a free-for-all. It can't be a free-for-all. All of Israel must keep walking in covenant faithfulness just as Joshua exhorted the eastern tribes. Again, verse 5, is their, really their marching orders. Where Joshua says to them, Be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's what they are to do. And that's what the Western tribes are seeking to uphold. That's what they are trying to hold the Eastern tribes accountable to. Well, the Eastern tribes have an explanation. And they offer that explanation in verses 21 to 29. And what I find fascinating is that they begin their rebuttal by offering a confession of faith in Yahweh. Look at verse 22, the first part of verse 22. They begin by saying, the mighty one, God, the Lord. The, and they repeat it, the mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know. In other words, they're confessing their faith in Yahweh, that he is God, that he is the mighty one. So it's clear from this confession that the eastern tribes have no intention of using this altar for idolatry. 
Instead, they are acknowledging that Yahweh is God, that he is the mighty one over all the earth. They clearly and gladly confess, not only to God, but to all of Israel, so that all of Israel may know that they intend to be faithful to the covenant. Because of their faith in God, then, they also intend to obey him faithfully by doing all that he has commanded in his law. And that eliminates the possibility of using this altar for improper sacrifices. They're not going to offer any sacrifices to Yahweh on this altar. He's only sanctioned one at the tabernacle. And when they need to offer sacrifices, when they're required to offer sacrifices, they will travel to Shiloh and they will offer God's sacrifices there. They will not offer them at this new altar. In fact, they acknowledge that this altar is not for sacrifice at all. Look at verse 26. Where they said, therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so that your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. So they acknowledge that this altar is not an altar for sacrifice by any means. They, they are confessing their faith to Yahweh, their faith in Yahweh. But they also acknowledge here that if indeed they have breached faith, that if indeed they are breaking the covenant, then they do deserve to die. Look at verse 23, the middle part of verse 23. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. Kill us off. We, this is what we deserve. Do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. What they're saying there is, is, look, if this is an improper altar, if this is an altar for idolatry or an altar for improper worship, then yes, you have every right to challenge us. You have every right to curse us and to kill us off. We deserve to be devoted to destruction if that is what is the case. But this altar does not have a sinful purpose. In fact, the eastern tribes here contend that the altar is to function more like a monument. We've seen monuments being built throughout the book of Joshua. In fact, this is the sixth monument that is built in the book of Joshua. A monument for remembrance, a monument to, to bear witness. In fact, they say that this monument is to serve as a witness to future generations of Israelites. It's to, to be a witness that the eastern tribes are to be included among God's people. In fact, they envision a scenario where later on in Israel's history, their descendants, the descendants of the Western tribes, would look across the Jordan and say, what do those people have to do with us? They see the Jordan River as a de facto barrier. God's people live mostly on the Western side. What are those people doing over there? Are they even really Yahweh worshipers? Are they even really part of the people of Israel? Perhaps they're not even part of us. Perhaps they are to be excluded. And so the eastern tribes say that this altar will prove to the descendants on both sides of the Jordan River that the eastern tribes also worship Yahweh and that they are also to be included among the people of Israel. So the altar served three purposes. One, it served to preserve the unity of Israel. The common faith of all Israelites in the Mighty One, God, the Lord, bound them together as one people, God's people. It was that faith that preserved the bonds of peace and unity among the Israelites. Second, the altar intended to preserve the faith of future generations of Israelites. 
The eastern tribes were concerned that their future descendants might not continue to walk in the ways of the Lord as they themselves did. And so to help remedy that problem, they built this altar to be a witness. The generations of the, of the great God who gave them that land and who they had put their faith and hope and trust in. The descendants of the eastern tribes could look to this altar of imposing size, this monument that captured their attention and reaffirmed their own covenant commitment to God. Third, the altar intended to remove a stumbling block that would impede the faith of others. In other words, it was there to remind the western tribes not to put a stumbling block before the eastern tribes. It was to keep them from saying, you guys over there have no part with us. You guys over there are not part of the people of Israel. You guys over there don't worship God the Lord. And so this altar was meant to prevent the western tribes from setting a stumbling block that would discourage the descendants of the eastern tribes from thinking that they were not included among God's people. That kind of questioning or discouragement could be spiritually fatal to the eastern tribes. And so once the eastern tribes had made their explanation, the western tribes received that, a delegation receives that explanation, they go back and report to the western tribes, and the western tribes stand down from their military posture. The crisis is averted. <clears throat> and as a result, we see in verses 30 to 34 that God blessed his people. He kept them from warring with one, with one another, and he preserved the peace he had given to them once the land had been distributed. The altar that the eastern tribes built stood to be a witness for both the eastern tribe and the western tribes and for their descendants, that Yahweh was their God, that Yahweh was the mighty one over all the earth. And it pledged their faithfulness to him, to love him completely and to walk in covenant obedience just as they had promised. Now, this is one of my favorite stories, not just in the book of Joshua, but in all of the Bible. And there is so much pragmatic application that we can draw. But I want to just identify four things. I hope to keep this moving pretty quickly. I know this is a long passage. But there are four points of application that I think stand out that would be important for us to mention this morning. First, number one, our common confession of faith in Christ binds us together as God's people. Our common confession of faith in Christ binds us together as God's people. Remember that when the eastern tribes first responded to the accusations of the western tribes, they evoked, they invoked that confession of faith in Yahweh as their God. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. And that confession would have brought a hearty amen from the western tribes. They would have said, yes, that's our confession too. Yes, we agree with that. In fact, it was because the western tribes thought that the eastern tribes had abandoned that confession that they were willing to initiate a civil war in defense of that confession. Their common confession of faith in Yahweh as their God, as the one true and living God, as the mighty God, was the basis for their national identity and unity. They're not the people of God without their confession of faith. They're not united as a nation together, one nation under God, without this confession. Likewise, it is our common confession of faith in Christ that binds us together as God's new covenant people 
the church. In fact, when you look around and see all the things we have in common, there really is not much. As a church, we've got people from all over different parts of the country, people with different educational levels, different kinds of jobs and skills, different economic statuses. We live in different parts of the city. We even root for different football teams. If you were to use any one of those things or anything else to try to hold us together as a church, we would fall apart. We would devolve into all kinds of peripheral and meaningless arguments. We would literally engage in a spiritual civil war in our midst. But that is not what unites us. What unites us and what has united all Christians together throughout the centuries is our common confession of faith in Christ. And the church has variously expressed that common confession over the centuries in all different kinds of creeds and confessions, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession. For us as a church, our own statement of faith is what binds us together. We ask all of our, not ask, we require all of our members to believe our statement of faith because that is what binds us together. It is those beliefs that bind us together as a church. But we can summarize, all Christians, all true Christians can summarize their confession of faith succinctly with three simple words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And if the basis of our commitment is anything other than that confession, then it's over. Just turn up the lights, lock the door, and they'll never come back. Because what makes us a church, what binds us together as the people of God, is our common confession of faith in Christ. And that is why we must always keep it before us. It's why we proclaim the gospel as we do week after week after week. It's why we want to have God-honoring worship every Sunday. Because Jesus is Lord. It's that confession that identifies who we are. It's that confession that keeps us on mission. It's that confession that serves as our witness to the world. It's that confession that keeps us together living in the bond of peace. We must hold fast to our common confession of faith for it binds us together as the people of God. Second application, we must zealously guard the true worship of God. We must zealously guard the true worship of God. The western tribes confronted the eastern tribes about the altar they had built because they assumed that it would be used either for false worship or improper worship. And if their assumption had turned out to be true then they would have been right to make war. There is no other worship of any other God than of the one true God, the one true and living God. God must be worshipped as he has prescribed in his word. And so the Western tribes zealously sought to protect the right worship of God, even at the expense of holding their Eastern brothers accountable. Because they made the confession that Yahweh was God, the Mighty One, the Lord of all the earth, then they must worship him alone in the way that he revealed to them. That was non-negotiable. If we confess that Jesus is Lord, and if that confession is central to our identity and unity and mission as a church, then we must worship him alone in the way that he requires. And we call this, theologically, we call this the regulative principle. The principle of worshiping God according to the pattern of worship he has given to us in the New Testament. And so what does the New Testament say about our worship? I preached a whole sermon on this back in February or March. 
of this year. So if you want more on this, you can go back to that sermon. But what are we to do? What is, what does the church's worship include based upon what the New Testament says? Well, it says we're to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That we're to devote ourselves to the public that we pray together, that we collect an offering to support the church's ministry, that we preach God's word, and that we observe the ordinances. So everything that we are doing today as part of our worship is exactly what God has said that we ought to do when we gather together for worship in his word. We haven't done anything this morning that God's word hasn't directed us to do. Again, the reason why we worship God properly, the reason why this is so important is because God has told us how to honor Him and how to worship Him. We exist to honor God. We desire to honor God. God created us to honor Him. God redeemed us as His people to honor Him. And so we must zealously guard the true and proper worship of God if we are to be faithful to our identity and calling and mission as a church. We must always guard against improper motivations that would detract us from worshiping God the way He intends. So many churches, I think, I think there's a good motive there, but it's misguided. We just want people to come in. We want people to hear the gospel. We want people to, to feel comfortable. And so what they do is they compromise the worship of God for the sake of the people that they are trying to reach. Friends, we are here to worship God. And if that keeps people away, so be it. What you win them with is what you keep them with. We are here for God and not for others. And so we continue to lift Him up. We make Him the the central point of our worship, the central object of our worship. And we do all that He requires us to do. We don't gear a worship service to make us feel good about ourselves. Because ultimately, worship is not about us, but it's about God. Because we must keep that as a a central um, focus, a central purpose zealously guarding the true worship of God. Third application. We must strive to maintain corporate unity. We must strive to maintain corporate unity. God brought Israel together as His covenant people, as one nation under God. All that God had done for His people, He did for them corporately. He didn't do something to the advantage of one tribe over against the others. He did it for the entire nation corporately. They came out of Egypt together. They crossed the Red Sea together. They wandered through the wilderness together. They crossed the Jordan River together. They fought the Canaanites together. And they inherited the land of Canaan together. God blessed them together. He blessed them corporately. Well, now that the tribes had departed to their own land inheritances, the temptation for growing apart and fighting among themselves increased exponentially. The Western tribes believed here in this situation that the eastern tribes had gone rogue and they were well intentioned to preserve the national unity even at the risk of war and the eastern tribes were well intentioned to build an altar not only so that their children wouldn't depart from the people of god but so that the western tribes would not isolate their children and cut them off from covenant community leading them to abandon the faith both groups were well intentioned to maintain the unity of god's people And they willingly took extreme lengths to preserve that unity. As a church, we are one people. And we must strive to preserve that unity that God desires for our church. Jesus even prayed on the night that he was betrayed. He prayed for the church. John 17, 
verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples that are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Now, unity is a function of the Spirit's work among us. But we cooperate with him to guard the unity of the church by fulfilling all of the one another's of the New Testament and not giving Satan a foothold to sow discord and division in our meat, in our midst. Unity does not mean that we will always agree about everything. After all, God has made us unique. But it does mean that we will steadfastly commit ourselves to one another, even in adversity, for the glory of God and for the sake of his cause. And then finally, fourth application, we must bear witness to the gospel. We must bear witness to the gospel. The eastern tribes built the altar to be a witness to all of Israel that they continued to trust God, that they were committed to being a part of his people. They even named the altar witness in verse 34 as a reminder of its function, that they were to bear witness to Yahweh, their God, the mighty one over all the earth. That was to whom they were devoting themselves. That was where their faith was placed. Our common confession in Christ our common worship of the one true and living God, and our unity as God's people bears witness about the gospel to a sinful world. We confess that we trust in Christ, that the hope of salvation, the hope of our salvation is in Him, that we are His people, the people that He has called to Himself and saved by the blood of Christ on the cross. Our worship declares that we honor him because he is worthy of worship and because we are grateful for our redemption. Our unity reveals this remarkable supernatural work that he has done to bring us together as his people. We are living witnesses to the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. It is our confession, it is our worship, and it is our unity that compels us to keep bearing witness to him. We want people to know the gospel because God is worthy of glory. He is worthy of seeing and hearing his name magnified, not just among us here in our little group, but among all of the nations. He is worthy of more and more people. He's worthy of more and more worshipers. It confounds me that this church is not filled more Sunday after Sunday and after Sunday to the brim, not because I'm a great preacher or because we have a great worship service or because we're all great people, but because we have a magnificent God. Why is the why are the created peoples of the world not just flocking to all of his churches to come and to bring his praise? And it is incumbent upon us because we are his people to bear witness to them that we have a great God, that there is a great creator, that there is a great savior over all the earth who is calling people to himself to acknowledge him and to worship him. We are to bear witness. God has brought us together to come together for a short time to worship and to praise his name. But he sends us out to bear that witness to the world. 
We want people to know the gospel because we have experienced its transformation and hope and blessing. We want others to experience what we have experienced. And so we must bear witness to the gospel because it is the hope of the world. That is our mission as God's people, united together in Christ. When God gave Israel the land of Canaan, we read in chapter 21 that he gave them rest. That rest was a satisfaction and a delight in him through the blessings that he afforded to them as his people. And part of that blessing, part of that delight was national unity. Peace among the Israelite brothers as they lived together and worshipped together and fellowshiped together as God's people. And while God gave them rest, He called his people to preserve that rest through their faithfulness to God and their support of one another. Now, again, reading through the rest of the Old Testament, we know that's not always going to be the case. But for a moment, we see what that would look like here in Joshua 22. Paul calls God's church, all of God's churches, to something similar. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he says, Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that you, that one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And in all. That is our call. And that is our hope. May we always strive to preserve the bonds of peace that God has created among us. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, for what it teaches us. We thank you that in this moment, Israel is a shining example of what the people of God are intended to be. And though there was a crisis, Lord, we see the good intentions on both sides. We thank you, Lord, that your peace prevailed and that it gives us a a microcosm, a a glimpse, Lord, of what the church is ought, ought to be and what it can be under Christ and through your Holy Spirit. We do pray, Lord, that you would make the words of Paul a living reality among us, that we would gather around our common confession of faith in Christ, that that would be the basis for who we are as a church, and that we would live that out, Lord, through truly worshiping you as you ought, through living together in unity, and through bearing witness to your name in all the world. May you take your word, Lord, and use it among us for your glory and for your sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.